1: The words are becoming cliches, unprecedented, urgent, crisis, and we're becoming fluent in what seems like a whole new language. Surge capacity, apex, ventilators, social distancing. One month in, COVID-19 is threatening to overwhelm our healthcare system. This is 880 in depth, and I'm Peter Haskell. In this episode, we look at the city's hospitals. Our guest is Jenna Mandel Ricci. She's an executive with the Greater New York Hospital Association.
0: We're a trade association for hospitals and health systems, and we represent and support about 160 hospitals and health systems throughout New York State, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And all the New York City hospitals are our members. So we're very involved. um, We're very involved with all of our members, but we're also very involved in emergency preparedness and response, specifically in New York City because of the concentration of our members.
1: Let's talk about the city hospitals right now. What can you tell us about the status of the hospitals, the emergency rooms, the ICUs?
0: They're all full. Um, In short, I mean our – so the governor, as you know, asked – they were already doing this. Um, all, All hospitals, as part of their emergency plans, have what are called surge plans. So for everything from a mass casualty incident to a hurricane to anything you can imagine, they have plans in place to surge to take on more patients. But this has been such an unprecedented event that they are taking those plans and going way beyond any kind of surge anyone had previously imagined. So they have been asked by the governor to surge at least by 50% and closer to 100%. So all of our hospitals are building out, to the best of their ability, additional beds, but I'm beds is not really just a bed it's also the equipment and the staff and the knowledge to take care of that kind of a patient so they have been surging in their emergency departments and they have also been surging within their sort of medical surgical spaces and specifically within their intensive care units because of the way that folks who get COVID-19 what kinds of symptoms they have and the kind of care that they need.
1: We've heard a lot about these other facilities. We've heard about Javits and the, the Navy ship Comfort. Are there patients currently in these and other facilities?
0: So we actually just completed, right before I'm getting on with you, we just completed a, a informational call with all of our hospitals where they had the opportunity to learn about the capabilities at Javits and the capabilities on the comfort and be able to ask questions directly of the physicians and clinicians and administrators that are in charge of those entities. And they just opened, Javits just opened on Monday and the comfort just opened yesterday. So I think our hospitals are still really kind of socializing what kinds of patients can be sent there and are really starting to consider what appropriate transfers would be. So it's exciting that those alternative care sites have come online, and it certainly is another kind of relief valve for our hospitals, and that we know other additional alternate care sites will be coming online too, and we really look forward to those coming online as well so that our hospitals can begin to relieve some of the pressure that they're feeling.
1: Two questions about that. First off, what kind of patients would go to these places? And two, stupid question, how do you get people there? You can get you can have a thousand beds, but you can't move, you know fifty people at a time. How does that work?:
0: Right. Right. So I'll answer your first question your second question first. So um, part of the guidance that went out from the State Department of Health to all of the hospitals really details how you go about transferring a patient. So they call into the Healthcare Evacuation Call Center or the HACC, H-E-C-C, and what, what, what they're asking is that, you know, so I am working at a hospital. I've identified, I've read the paperwork. I've identified 10 patients that I think are good candidates to be transferred to these two places. So I call into this information line. It's answered by a nurse who works for the State Department of Health. And we go through those patients, and we decide if they are an appropriate candidate for either the Javits Medical Station or the Comfort, and then they are accepted, and then there's a process where transportation is sort of routed to the hospital, so an ambulance would be routed to the hospital to pick up patients that have been accepted and would either be taken to Javits or taken to the Comfort. Um, and the comfort actually is providing a higher level of care. It's really about the capabilities, both the, the staff capabilities and the equipment capabilities and the lab capabilities and all of that together that allows you to determine the kind of level of acuity that uh, patients that can go to the comfort or to the jabot. So for the comfort there's actually an additional step where a clinician from the hospital has to have a direct phone conversation with a clinician at the comfort for them to discuss the patient and make sure that it's an appropriate transfer and that the comfort can provide the level of care that the patient
1: needs. I want to go back to the beginning. When I asked you about the hospitals, you said, in short, they're full. What does that mean? And are there patients that are being diverted from one hospital to another?
0: So many of the hospitals in New York City are part of health systems. So if you think about the New York City health and hospitals, for example, they have 11 hospitals within their system or New York Presbyterian has six hospitals within the city and then additional hospitals outside of the city. So on a day-to-day basis, those hospitals within their own health systems move patients around as needed, either because they have don't have space in an appropriate unit or because a person requires some kind of specialty care that may be available in one hospital and not at another. So for weeks, as hospitals have been surging to take on COVID patients, they've been redistributing patients among their own health system. And we know, for example, that a lot of the hospitals in Queens are really part of this kind of epicenter of the outbreak. So they've been hit harder than hospitals in other boroughs. So already there was a lot of transferring that was going on. So that was sort of this step one, and then a higher level is obviously hospitals then transfer patients between health systems as well, or hospitals that are independent and not part of a system already have established transfer relationships with other hospitals. So that's been happening for a while, and then we're kind of adding this additional layer now with the opening of Javits and the opening of the Comfort that there are additional places that hospitals can be transferred to.
1: I know one of the things the governor has talked about is that the hospital systems, the privates, the publics, they they can't be in a position where they compete, but they need to collaborate. How easier, complicated is that?
0: It's happening, and it's been happening. So, and especially during, I mean, of course, during, you know, regular times, Hospitals generally transfer patients within their own system, but in times of stress or emergency, there are already well-established mechanisms, and there's also an attitude of we're all in this together and we're all one hospital community. So that is already happening, and we certainly do whatever we can To facilitate that through the sharing of information and, for example, the role that we played, like as an example today, setting up a a call so that hospitals could get really granular information about what Javits can do and what the Comfort can do and that they can then begin to think about using that as an additional part of the hospital and healthcare community to deal with this crisis.
1: We keep hearing that the peak is, you know, a week, uh, three weeks, four weeks away. How how close are we to a, a seriously crisis situation?
0: Um, I mean, I think we're all on a race against the clock. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm not a modeler, and there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of modeling and, and, and trying to, to figure it out, and I think you're hearing the governor talk more and more about we need to – you know, think of this as a, as a you know, state solution. Um, I know city government and state government and federal government are working very, very hard and working as fast as they can to get a number of alternate care sites up and running. And there's also a lot of effort being done through public-private partnerships with different nonprofit organizations that have come into the city and are partnering with existing hospitals and health systems to help them expand the footprint of their hospital so that they can take on more beds and so it's really going to take we've never had this happen before at this level so it's really going to take all everyone everything firing with all pistons so to speak in order to just create as much capacity as we can in order to meet the demands so um, and, and I think everyone is, you know, deeply, deeply worried and concerned about our ability to, to meet the demand as we work to increase this, the supply of care. And it's not just the beds of the space, it's also the equipment and the, the personal protective equipment and, most importantly, the staff to provide the care.
1: The equipment issue is critical. The stories from the front lines are frightening doctors and nurses wearing garbage bags instead of gowns? And what about using dirty masks, cleaning masks, not getting masks, not being able to protect themselves? We asked about the volume of supplies on hand.
0: Peter, I feel like I'm not in a good position to answer how many days we have now. I will tell you that we are working in partnership with all the city and state and federal agencies and working in partnership with all of the folks that do kind of day-to-day supply chain and group purchasing management for healthcare, and have incredible knowledge about the supply chain and the suppliers and we are all working as hard as we can to get as much stuff <laughs> as we can to New York City and to New York State um, there are some hopeful signs that the sort of regular marketplace of these goods is starting to open back up. We know all of the factories in China that make this equipment are now up and running, and those products should be flowing more regularly to the U.S. and hopefully to our region, so that is a, a really, really helpful sign. Um, we also know that, and we have been working very, very closely with of folks that run the city stockpiles of the state stockpiles and accessing information about the federal stockpile, which is called the Strategic National Stockpile, and trying to strenuously make the case, of course, there are hot spots happening all over the country, but really make the case that New York needs these goods and materials now in order to protect our healthcare workforce and, and, and meet the needs of the region.
1: How do you protect the frontline of healthcare workers? And I guess more significantly, can you?
0: I mean, I will tell you that they are doing heroic work and that it is the, the safety and protection of the healthcare workforce is the top priority for the healthcare community. I mean, we have regular meetings and calls with the Chief executive officers of all of our health systems, and we're in constant contact with leadership of our member hospitals, and that is their number one concern because um, we can't do anything without our healthcare workforce, and they are truly the heart of, of everything that's happening. And um, we are, you know, working hard to get the best information we can about conservation strategies, and and. You know, hunting down every lead that we hear about to get more personal protective equipment. Um, I think it's a huge focus, but we do know that there are healthcare workers that are getting sick or need to be furloughed for a certain amount of time before they can come back and and take care of patients. And so really managing the safety of the healthcare workforce and, and making sure that there are just enough staff to meet the demand during this time is Um, really challenging and a a huge priority.
1: Let's talk about staff. We hear about these retired people stepping forward, volunteers stepping forward. Have any of those people been actually put on the front lines? And how does that work? How do you know somebody's qualified? How do you know someone's trained? Maybe someone's a a radiologist or urologist. They're not used to working in the ER I'm I'm sorry, in the ICU. How does all of this Mm -hmm. work?
0: So the same way that hospitals have plans in place to surge, they also have plans in place to bring on additional staff because this is like a, a known problem, right? So there are already mechanisms and protocols in place to credential and onboard volunteer staff or paid staff or staff from other health systems. So there's a number of mechanisms that are being utilized in order to increase staffing. One is we talked earlier about how many of our hospitals are part of large health systems. So those health systems don't just have hospitals. They also, many of them have very, very large ambulatory care networks. So they've closed down a lot of those ambulatory ambulatory care networks and they are taking those staff that normally provide primary care or specialty care, and they're reassigning those staff to roles in the hospitals. They're taking staff that are usually in administrative roles but may have clinical backgrounds and reassigning them to hospitals. They're working through staffing agencies that can bring clinical staff from across the country and hiring staff through those staffing agencies to come to their hospitals. They're also working through these volunteer Initiatives that have been set up at the city level and the state level, and they're reaching back to their own retirees and bringing them on. And they have processes in place in order to match people up, to train people, to onboard people. Um, and there's also a lot of other resources. For example, there's a critical care society that's a, a specialty society, and they've put together resources on how you can train non-critical care staff to take on limited critical care roles. So there are a lot of different things that are happening in order to surge staff into hospitals and then take the staff that are available in that labor pool and find appropriate ways to use them in order to free up the staff that have critical skills that need to be utilized. For example, there are so many people that are in ICUs and on vents that respiratory therapists are in high demand so there have been specific calls and initiatives done to people that have respiratory therapy licensures and credentials and ask them to volunteer or people that have critical care credentials and ask them to volunteer so those are some of the things that are being done to augment staffing.
1: You've been involved in this kind of thing and planning How does what you're seeing now compare to what was tabletoped or plotted out in drills?
0: Um, you know, drills are never like real life. (laughs) Um, I I think, um, I mean, with with emergency preparedness and emergency management, drills are so important because you know, luckily, knock on wood, we're not in emergency mode all the time, right? And it helps us really think about how do the pieces fit together and the coordination. Um, I I think what you miss from drills and then from real life is all of this sort of interconnectedness and the complexity of 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 what's being dealt with. I mean, the fact that we have That we had a pandemic that started in China where most of our PPE manufacturing happens and that that triggered or contributed to a lot of the shortages that we're managing I mean that was something that I that that could have been known but that's the kind of complexity and interdependency that happens in real life that I think often doesn't make it into drills and exercises so I think this is just such a multi-layered real-world event um, and and requires such creative thinking and problem-solving and coordination. I've always appreciated that responding to emergencies of any kind is absolutely a team sport and requires so many different parts of government and private industry working together. Um, but the level of cooperation coordination that this is demanding is is quite incredible. And then often we think of emergencies as kind of localized or maybe regional. The fact that this is something that is worldwide and the additional layers of complexity that that adds is is frankly mind-boggling. So I would say those for me are the, the big differences.
1: Last question for you. For New Yorkers who think to themselves, oh, my God, if I get sick, can I get the help I need? Can the hospitals help me? What do you tell them?
0: I think I tell them to socially distance and follow all the rules so that hopefully they don't get sick. I mean, the main reason we're doing all of the things that we are doing is so that we do not overwhelm the healthcare system and individuals can get the care that they need, the people that get the most sick. So I think it is every person's responsibility to one another and to the healthcare workers that are on the front lines to do everything they can so that they don't get sick. And it is through taking those actions that we can try and preserve the resources that are already so strained, so that hopefully everyone who does get sick can get the care they
1: need. I've got to be honest with you; that doesn't sound encouraging.
0: I mean, we are we're doing everything we can, Peter. But this is really—I mean, this is an unprecedented event, and and um, you know, when people talk about flattening the curve, it really is so that we can. You know, we, we know a lot of people will get sick, but if we can stretch that out over a longer period of time, that allows the healthcare system to deliver in the way that it needs to.
1: Sincere thanks to our guest, Jenna Mandel-Ricci. She's with the Greater New York Hospital Association, and you can just imagine how busy she is. This is 880 In Depth. We've been spending a lot of time on COVID-19, and we will continue to do so. Every week, maybe sometimes twice a week, we bring you a new episode. The story's not going away, and neither are we. We're digging deep to find things important to you. Please subscribe. I'm Peter Haskell. Thanks for listening.